Some people seem to move almost effortlessly from planning into action, but appearances can be deceiving. It all comes down to having a process that works for you. I'm your host, M. David Green. Hack the Process is a show about looking at the systems and processes that we build our lives around to support mindful, meaningful progress. This show explores ways that people get past that pivot point, from having a fantasy to putting something real out there into the world. If you're ready to stop planning and fantasizing and start taking action, let's hack the process together. Before we get started, I wanted to let everybody know that there's a new podcast coming out from my publisher, SitePoint.com, and I'm going to be co-hosting it with Tim Evko. It's called The Versioning Show, and as one of the listeners described it, it's a show about the philosophy of web development and design. And if that sounds intriguing, you might want to go to SitePoint.com and check out The Versioning Show podcast. Let me know what you think. Brendan Dunn is on a mission to get freelancers to start thinking of themselves as business consultants. His company, Double Your Freelancing, grew out of his own experience moving from independent developer to running his own agency, launching and selling a software-as-a-service product, and eventually publishing books and classes and running conferences designed to help other people selling their services learn the tricks he discovered along the way. In this episode, Brennan will explain how he benefited from joining a $2,000 a month mastermind group, why he prices his conferences to break even rather than doing them for profit, and why he would never again start a business by launching a software-as-a-service product. Today I'm speaking with Brennan Dunn, and he runs DoubleYourFreelancing.com and also has a podcast. Brennan, how are you doing today? I'm good, David. Thanks for having me. Great. So you're doing a bunch of things these days. How do you introduce yourself? What do you tell people you're doing? <laughs> so the short elevator pitch is I help freelancers get better at the business behind their business. So I have, like you mentioned, a podcast. I have a number of courses. I've got a blog. I've got a lot of different things out there. And my focus is on helping people who are technically very good learn how to sell and market and price themselves. Okay. It sounds like you've got a pretty clear idea then of who your audience is. How do you define who you're targeting, who you're trying to help? Sure. So typically it's a creative freelancer. So somebody who might be a designer, a developer, a writer, somebody who does something typically for businesses. So if a business is in the business of hiring you to build them websites, to build them apps, to write copy for them, to do photography for them, whatever it might be, technically, I come in and I help people learn how to understand the needs of businesses and how to appropriately put yourself in front of them, pitch them on a project and price in such a way that everyone wins in the end. Okay, so you're targeting people who are focused in a B2B area, and I guess you're, you're focused on freelancers, right? That's right. Yeah, although a good percentage of my audience are agencies. Uh, my background actually is in the agency world, but since there's not really any blanket term for somebody who does B2B services uh, for others, you know, I target people, self-identified consultants, agency owners, studio owners. Most of the people who come across my stuff are self-identified as freelancers. That's what they're searching in Google and everything else. So it makes sense for me in that respect. But my secret kind of plan is to help people stop calling themselves freelancers and instead uh, look at themselves as business consultants. That's interesting because, you know, of course, your branding, your, your name is around the term freelancing. Is that something that you started with and that you're thinking you want, want to evolve beyond? I don't think so. Because again, I'm getting people in who identify as freelancers and then I'm turning them into consultants. So that's kind of what it is I'm doing. I tend to often use freelance consulting as a phrase. 
And that tends to be kind of the blanket term of somebody who is legally on a freelance basis, but they're helping business through consulting. So it's not just a coder for hire is what I'm trying to get. I'm trying to get people to stop looking at themselves as a X for hire and instead look at themselves as a provider of solutions for businesses who happen to use X. That's interesting because it, it sounds like you're encouraging people to move beyond thinking of what they're doing as services and more thinking about productizing what they're doing. Correct. Correct. Yeah. Is, is that how you position it? I do. Yeah. Because a lot of people think that the reason they're hired is because somebody wants to pay a bunch of money to get code written or to get designs created or whatever else. And my focus is on how can you look at what it is you're doing as a one-off product for a business that has set benefits that deliver business value to the client and end up making their business better off as a result of working with you versus just, you know, I will code to, for the highest bidder or, you know, whatever else. <laughs> it, it sounds like it's kind of a difficult transition for people to make. And, and it's probably a transition you yourself had to make at some point in your career. It is. Yeah. So I started freelancing, typical code monkey freelancing for startups out on the West Coast. And then I grew an agency to 11 employees. And in that process, I learned a lot about kind of why people hired us, what they were really looking for. And we started shifting away from just being talent for rent to being really a solutions provider. I mean, it, it sounds kind of tacky, but at the end of the day, that's what businesses want. Yeah. So, I mean, in that process, I, I learned a lot about how to build up a backlog of work and how to get away from kind of that feast and famine cycle and how to price based off the value you provide and so on. So, you know, I built up the agency and then I jumped into the SaaS world. I started a software as a service business called PlanScope, which I recently just sold back in January. And starting that business, I started this training business because a lot of people who use PlanScope were freelancers. And they had questions that were kind of out of scope, had nothing to do with the project management software. And they were asking things about, hey, you know, do you have any advice on getting clients? Or, you know, I read your bio and, you know, I want to start an agency. Do you have any advice? Then the idea of the double your freelancing stuff, the courses that you sell, the conferences that you run, that kind of evolved on the side along the way while you were doing other things. Yeah, you know, I thought at first it would be lead gen for PlanScope, <laughs> which I was, I thought, you know, if I get people in and I'm writing content on sales and marketing, People who demographically are the right fit will come across that, get into the content, and then eventually they'll sign up for PlanScope. That did often happen, but then I realized sometime mid last year, I single-handedly can't run DYF, which is now a seven-figure-a-year business, along with a SaaS. It's just too hard to balance it all. So I had to cut the ties on the SaaS, which was a little bit more sweet. It was my first actual product, I guess, outside of having an agency or a consulting business. People with technical background who might have been engineers before, I think they look at the idea of starting a SaaS, launching a software as a service as the ultimate end goal. That's where I have to go. Yeah, yeah, they do. And that's where that's what I felt too, because I think a lot of us, we realize we have clients, we might have, let's say, three clients at once who pay us a lot. The idea of having 3,000 people paying us a little is a lot more palatable. It's definitely what drew me to SaaS. Although it's funny, as an engineer, I wasn't really a big fan of quote unquote info products. Right, which is kind of what I do now. I mean, I, I have courses and everything, so I'm selling information in a way. But it took me a while to really get comfortable with the fact that I could actually be successful by not selling software. Because the awakening I had, I guess, if you want to call it that, was people want to buy things that help boost their business. They want to be have a more profitable business. They want to start losing less money. You know, there's some there's some business goal at hand. And sometimes software is the way to do it. Project management software, for instance, will help a business, if it's done right, better manage the projects, which helps them have happier clients and everything else. But a CRM software is not going to teach somebody how to sell. It's not going to teach somebody how to persuade somebody that you're the best option for them, right? So that's where training, I think, comes into play. And it took me a while to really get comfortable with that, to be honest. 
But um, I'm glad I did because, again, now I look at it as just as, you know, whether it's software or a course or whatever, at the end of the day, you're here to help a customer be better off. And the customers that you're targeting, I mean, obviously the larger enterprise customers have more money to spend on these sorts of things, but you also go down the path of selling these things to individuals who are out there starting their own businesses, trying to learn their way through the paths that you've already started to follow. Right. I mean, the big eye opener for me was with PlanScope when the number one reason people canceled didn't have anything to do with the software itself. When you go to cancel, it would ask you, why are you canceling? And the number one reason was ran out of work or getting a job or something like that because I've just seen this firsthand myself. I've seen it with a lot of my friends. You have good times and you have bad times. And well, when they have bad times, what do they cancel? They cancel the project management software because they have no projects to manage. That's one of the reasons I, I did start looking into this because I knew if I could keep my customers more successful, to be more successful, they'd uh, keep paying the monthly bill for PlanScope. <laughs> so yeah. That's funny because clearly now you've sold PlanScope, but the rest of the business is still going. Yes. So I sold PlanScope. I mean, it was doing okay-ish. Just I couldn't support it because I was trying to grow WR Freelancing and I couldn't jump into the mode of help desk and jumping in and fixing this weird browser bug or something, you know, something like that. It was just becoming overwhelming. And it was actually affecting my customers because my customers would invite their clients into PlanScope. So, you know, if, if somebody's saying, hey, your software just embarrassed me in front of my clients, to me, that was problematic. So I went down the path of looking for somebody to buy it. Fortunately, the people who bought it or the, the person who bought it, rather, was not just a kind of like a holding company. Instead, it was an individual who had a good amount of money saved up and they were in the corporate world. They wanted to start their own SaaS business. They just didn't want to go through the hoops of like starting from nothing and building an audience and everything else. So they basically took the shortcut and bought PlanScope. And it's been great because he's been really supporting the customers, pushing out a lot of updates and, and fixing a lot of the longstanding issues. Best bit is that he's just, you know, if you write into support, you hear back within a few hours instead of, you know, a week, <laughs> like back when I had it. Well, that's great. So you, you definitely passed it into good hands. It's got to be satisfying for you. Yes, very satisfying. Yeah. Since you went out and you built a successful uh, software as a service business, it's interesting you didn't choose to build instructional materials for all of those people out there who want to build a software as a service business. You find a lot of people who kind of get super meta and they're like, I uh, built a course, so I'm going to build a course on courses. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that definitely. <laughs> so it's funny. I, I do occasionally consult. The consulting I do is doing for companies the kind of work that I do for my own site. So fact of the matter is, case in point, I went from like a 2% global opt-in rate to about an 8 or 9% global opt-in rate on my site. And that got on the radar of a company with a $100 million a year marketing budget. And they're like, oh, if you can do that on your little BS business, if you could do that for us, that would be like lots and lots and lots of money, right? Yeah, those are very impressive numbers. <laughs> yeah, right. So the kind of consulting I do now is basically where I get meta, but I'm very adamant about not ever having like a course on courses or a course on like building a product business or anything like that. I want to have a single audience. I want to serve a single kind of need. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's tempting because I get a lot of people, you know, I give talks at conferences now about kind of the meta level stuff. Like I just gave one at a, a conference in Philadelphia about, how I do on-site personalization. So if you're a customer of mine, you go to my site, it's going to look different than if you're a just anonymous Google visitor or something like that. And I change things depending on, you know, what you've done and what you haven't done. Yeah, I mean, I give talks about that. I consult about that, but I've never wanted to get into the world of actually having a, an actual product that people can buy that covers that. 
I can understand that. After all the courses that you have been putting together, it sounds like you've been having a lot of success with these in terms of what your students have been able to accomplish. Yeah, I've had to actually hire somebody now full-time to just manage testimonials and case studies. <laughs> May I quote you on that? That's a beautiful line. I've had to hire somebody just to handle testimonials. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's good because honestly, I'm still an engineer at heart. And it's one thing, like when you're writing software, you can see oh, here's my, you know, you have some sort of analytics dashboard. You can see people are creating projects and people are doing stuff in it. They keep doing it again and again and again. And that's the validation I think you need that, okay, you're deliver you, you've built something of value. Whereas when you're selling, let's say an online course, honestly, if it wasn't for the feedback I was getting from students, I wouldn't be able to do it. I just wouldn't be able to deal with it just because, you know, I'm still kind of, I don't know. There's a lot of bad players out there, I, I think. And I just don't want to be mixed into that, if that makes sense. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I can definitely see that. And it sounds like the feedback that you get is also very motivational for you. It is. It keeps me going. And it's also lets me see what things I could do next to help even more people. That's cool. So I'd like to take you through some of the steps that you took, because you made a few transitions in your career from being the engineer to being the agency runner to building your SaaS, to running these courses, the steps between those aren't logical for some folks. And I'm curious how you made those transitions. Okay, so the agency to SaaS wasn't too hard, or it wasn't hard mentally because I built SaaS stuff for my clients all the time. So it wasn't like a new skill set I had to adopt. I mean, this is the stuff we did day in and day out at the agency. So building PlanScope was also to kind of scratch our own itch. We wanted a project, and you see this, a lot of agencies build their own CMSs or they build their own project management software. You know, I'm guilty of that. So that's kind of what I did there. So that wasn't hard for me. I think the, the hard part for me was when I started getting support requests that had nothing to do with a product, but were asking about things like, do you have any advice on what I should charge? And I got a lot of people who would ask that. I don't know why, honestly. Maybe every other project management tool gets the same kind of support requests. But I was getting a lot of these, and I would oftentimes end up on a Skype call and just kind of, I don't know what to call it, but I guess I was coaching people through like, hey, yeah, you know, here's what I would do if I were in your case. Because I wanted these people to succeed. They succeeded. Again, they would keep paying me monthly. So, but I, I kept talking to people about pricing and proposals and how to close deals and everything else. Things I'd learned just kind of the hard way building this agency. We got to the point where I kept realizing I was doing this again and again and again. Actually, a good friend of mine, Amy Hoy, who I learned how to build products largely from her course, 30 by 500. She bet me saying like, why don't you create a book on this? Like you keep saying the same thing again and again. Why not package it in such a way where you could, you know, sell it could bring in some revenue, but it could also point people towards PlanScope. I said, cool, I'll try it. So I did that. And the first version of Double Your Freelancing Rate, which is about four and a half years ago, was just an ebook. The big thing for me, so that was kind of the first big step, right? Going from the engineer who was very skeptical about all this stuff to biting the bullet, doing it and seeing early results, seeing that people were actually really liking it. I wasn't getting flooded with refund requests or anything like that. So I was really happy about that. The next big iteration, though, was about turning it from a book to a course. And I know the listeners can't see, but you can. So I've got a bookshelf behind me. I, I buy a lot of books. A lot of them I buy because I want what's in it, but I actually never act on it. I never read it or I never implement it or whatever else if it's a business book. And I wanted something that was a little more, had a little more built in accountability. It's really easy to say, sell somebody kind of on the sizzle of like, wouldn't it be great if you had an easier time closing deals and could price higher and everything else. And I noticed people would buy with that goal in mind, but they wouldn't actually do anything as a result. I redid the whole thing as a course 
I rewrote everything. I produced a bunch of video content, templates, documents, everything else, and redid it as a course that was much more, had a lot of baked in accountability. So that was kind of the next big step, which was how can I get away from just selling info and instead sell information that also is more likely to be implemented. And then that's when I started needing to bring in people to help me with case study stuff because it just went through the roof at that point. And now we've had about 8,000, I think, people go through the course. It's doing extremely well. And now, again, I've done a lot of other other things. Like I have a, a new thing that actually just launched called the Academy, where these are people who have all the information. They know what they need to do, but they want to work individually, kind of like with a sampler platter of experts who can help them with their positioning, with their outreach, with putting together their new marketing website for their agency with pricing, with, you know, all these different things. So it's a seven month online course where it's not just videos. Instead, you work a month at a time with these different subject matter experts. We're calling it like getting your MBA in freelancing because you're working basically one-on-one with a lot of these experts I've recruited. So that's the, kind of the next big stage. That's very exciting. That sounds like it's kind of the model of these software development boot camps. That's exactly what it is. Yeah, it's, it's an intense boot camp, but for freelancing instead of learning how to write Ruby code or something. <laughs> Cool. And how did you select the experts for that? So they're all actually people who I have known for a while. They've spoken at my conferences. They've, many of them have written books. They're deeply authoritative and the kind of slice of consulting know-how that they focus on. I've known them all for a while. And like I said, they've spoken at my conferences. We hang out a lot offline also, and I trust them. I mean, they're very good with people and they're very good teachers. I recruited them that way. I, it wasn't like a blind recruitment process or anything. Yeah, you, you mentioned you also run conferences as part of this. Did that come naturally out of the course development or is that something that you built up on the side? So we're about to do our third conference. We did one last year in the US. We did one a few months back in Sweden. Now we're doing another one in the US. And I did it because I go to a lot of conferences myself. Like for instance, all the teachers of the academy, I originally met at some point at a conference. I go to a lot of conferences, a lot of business conferences that are more focused on bootstrapping or business or something like that. But I didn't know of any that were kind of just on the business side of consulting. Like everything that I'd seen would be like a design conference or Ruby or Python or, you know, some language or something like that. And I wanted something that was a nice, small, intimate setting where people could talk to other kind of business minded freelancers, but also learn a lot in the process. You know, it's funny, I kind of run them as a nonprofit in a way because I break even intentionally on them. But what they allow me to do is they allow me to meet my customers usually face to face. And it also does help from like a business perspective. It does help with really making the brand a lot more premium because we've had, you know, 100 plus people at these events. It sounds like the attendees probably span a wide range from developers to designers to other industries as well. They do. Yeah, we've had, I mean, it's always funny when you'll find like a lawyer there or something. The majority are designers or developers, but we do have copywriters, marketers, SEO types. Yeah, I mean, really, as long as you're doing something that helps businesses build a better business, whatever it might be technically, none of the talks ever have code or anything like about technical stuff. It's always very high level business stuff. For instance, at the last conference, we did one on remote working. So how do you, if you've got clients all over the world, what are some tips and processes you can put into place to work remotely with clients that are virtually anywhere? I mean, obviously, if you're like a videographer, you can't really do as much remote work as a coder might be able to. But for the most part, yeah, most of them are work online. They're bloggers or designers or developers or something. 
Can you tell me a little bit about the process that you go through when you developed and when you launch and when you run these conferences? It's not something that comes intuitively to a lot of folks. And I know there are a lot of details that go into making event planning work properly. Okay, so I have a cop-out answer. It's called hire somebody. <laughs> that's <laughs> so, an excellent answer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like when I did my first conference, I had never run an event like that before. I didn't even know, like, what do you do? Call the hotel and say, can we get a group rate? I had no idea like what you do to even do any of this. So my cop-out answer is I did hire Xander, Xander Castro. He has a company called Startup Event Solutions. And he's great because it's kind of like when you think of like a good accountant, it's somebody who obviously knows accounting, but also finds loopholes to make your tax bill lower. He knows how to negotiate with the venues, but he also knows how to work with the venues. So, you know, he saved me money that I wouldn't have been able to save probably on my own, but he also just knows the game. He knows how to set it all up. So all I had to do was find speakers and sell. And I know how to do both of those because the speakers I usually know. To sell it, it's like selling anything else. Although it's a little harder because you people need to physically get to where you are versus it being an online thing. I've seen folks doing online conferences as well. Yeah, I thought about that. But I mean, the benefit of the conference for me is not as much in the content. It's more about the relationships you make. No offense to anyone doing an online conference. It's not the same. Well, no, it's, it's just you're optimizing for something different. And like a lot of folks that I've talked to, you're focusing a lot on the importance of face-to-face -face communications as part of the value that you're adding. That's right. I mean, that's one of the things I, I teach a lot about. But on top of that, the value in going to an event and meeting people who could potentially work with you on future projects, partner with you on something else, or just become a mastermind person that you meet with biweekly for the next X many years... I mean, that, that's all happened as a result of my events. So I look at it as I'm just the matchmaker. I'm bringing the right people in the right place together. And what happens when you get all these people together, the conversations, the follow-up discussions and everything else, it's incredible what happens. You can't do that online. We can't do it as well online. A lot of people with engineering backgrounds tend to be a little shy about the face-to-face -face stuff, honestly. Yeah, so I'm introverted and an engineer, so I sympathize. What I'm doing now, which I think helps, is... We had a, so the last conference in Sweden was at a spa and we were all in robes and there's nothing like sitting in a hot tub with a bunch of strangers to kind of break the ice. But what we're doing this year in Norfolk at the U.S. conference is, because I know a lot of these people anyway, I'm going to be pairing them up with a group, like a small group of five, that when you get to the event for the opening reception the night before, you kind of huddle with these people and you briefly introduce yourself, what you're hoping to get out of the conference, what you need to get out of the conference and so on. And then this kind of becomes your, like, you, you know, if you're at like a evening party, let's say, and there's a bunch of groups all talking to each other and you're kind of that loner in the back, like I am. When you see people from that group, that small group who you were kind of put with at the beginning, I know for a fact, I'm much more able to then go and kind of jump in because I can say, oh, hey, you know, David, how's it going? Or, you know, whatever else. So we're doing that. And then at the end, we're going to reconvene in these small groups. They're going to kind of do a, a recap, like, here's what I got out of it and so on. And then we're going to try to find a way to catalog that all kind of on a central level. I mean, my, my events are small. I don't like big events. I don't like, I've been to conferences with thousand plus people. It's like a city, not in a, not an intimate event. One of the things I do too at my conferences, I don't have like a speaker room. I don't really put speakers on a pedestal. So it's kind of like speakers are attendees who happen to be up on stage and it's very intimate. It's small intentionally and we get a lot of introverts to come out to my events because I'm an introvert and maybe I track them. But yeah, people people seem to like the setup. Well, for an introvert, it sounds like you've done a lot of thought about the, the human interaction aspect of this. Is this something that you also studied or is this just something that you picked up going to conferences yourself? Well, I studied um, liberal arts and the classics in school. 
read a lot of philosophy and history and everything else. So maybe that helped. But I think the big thing was, for me at least, just a lot of what helped me be successful at business was learning how to become a selective extrovert and to just understand psychology a little better than I did going into it. So, you know, a lot of what I do now is when I help somebody with how you pitch a project, how can you better understand their needs? How can you ask the right questions that help you see what it is they need from you and so on? And then you, you use that all to help build up a very strong case for hiring you. A lot of my students who need to kind of get out of their comfort zone and jump into things that might not, you know, a lot of people love the idea of these like online job boards because it's kind of like supply demand alignment, but I'm not a big fan of them because they tend to be raced to the bottom more than often. I'm helping people get better in a more intentional way at things like networking and just talking with leads and learning about their needs and everything else. Well, it sounds like that ties into something you mentioned earlier, because you were talking about what's involved in setting up a conference, and you said, and there's selling, and I know how to do that. Now, that's something that not a lot of people brush over easily. What, what, is, your, what is your approach to that? I mean, selling, to me, is just alignment. It's taking a, a known need, sympathizing with that need, and then providing an offer, providing a way to solve that need. So, you know, whether it's a course or a conference, the need that I, I sell my conferences on is you work alone. You want to surround yourself for a few days with people who, who, like one of the things I say is you want to be able to go to a place where when somebody asks what you do for a living, you don't need to respond with internet. <laughs> like, you know, like, so you can actually be open about what it is you do. And, uh, you know, people like being around people like them. They like talking with people who are like them. They like learning kind of behind the scenes stories that you don't usually get from Twitter feeds. So my job as a conference organizer here and somebody who's trying to sell the conference is to show somebody how they're going to walk away with not only a huge to-do list of actionable items. So that's another thing. None of the talks are fluffy. They're not like, look at my awesome story. They're instead always focused on, you know, my, I tell each speaker, everyone needs to be able to get at least three takeaways, action items from your talk. So every talk needs to be actionable, which means in my mind, people are going to walk away and they do walk away with a to-do list that's very long. But on top of that, a lot of motivation because they've been seeing people, they've been talking to them and really resonating with other people and saying, yeah, you know, I get what you're going through or seeing people who might be a little further along than they are and getting that kind of dose of inspiration. I mean, that's when I go to a conference, that's what happens to me is a good conference. I walk away with things I want to be doing and a lot of motivation to do it. That's what the offer is really of the conference. I think everybody loves the opportunity to see somebody who's just a little bit beyond where they are right now and somebody that's an achievable step. I'm curious if the people that you get, are these people who are like experienced talkers or do you actually teach them how to give their presentations? We don't really bring in people who are circuit speakers. They tend to be people, like at the last conference, I'd say about half of them, this was their first real talk they've ever given. And I do make sure that, I mean, obviously... They need to be proficient at English and everything else. Yeah, there's a good amount of coaching, I guess, in, in what I do, because I want to make sure, like, again, there needs to be continuity in what's being presented. I mean, if you look at the conference as a product, you can't have a bunch of competing voices with different ideas and everything else. So, you know, when I structured actually all the talks, I made sure that there was a kind of like a, you know, every, every talk built on the previous talk. And it was actually good because at the end, you started seeing, even though the speakers didn't talk to each other beforehand or, or work with each other, there was a lot of common threads, which in my mind is really good validation that this is what you should be doing. And people, I wasn't the only one who picked up on that. And people really liked seeing 
it's interesting seeing people from all these different walks of life who do different kind of work from different countries who've all kind of settled on this core way of building amazing things for your clients. I love a, a single track conference that builds progressively on itself. And it's great that you're bringing in speakers who have a variety of backgrounds. And I, I'm imagining that what you're teaching your speakers in terms of how to present and how to give to dues, that's part of what you teach in your program as well. It is, yeah. I mean, whatever you're doing, the consumer, the customer, the listener, whatever it is, should be getting some sort of return on investment for their time or their money. So like, for instance, with this podcast, the goal is that anyone listening is going to walk away from listening to this podcast better than they were going into it. And that should be the goal of anything, whether you're writing an email, whether you're writing a proposal, whether you're doing a conference, like whatever it is you're doing, if that's your focus, you're probably going to succeed. Because a lot of people don't really focus on that. They don't think, how can I make the person who is giving up time or giving up money directly better off with a very quick feedback loop as a result of going through this or listening to this? And in the contemporary economy, getting people to give up time is more challenging sometimes than many. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Right. And that's that's the trick is it's, you're competing with attention and you're competing with budgets. So, you know, just learning how to get good at understanding how it is you can help people. When you built your own career around around this, is, was there anybody you were modeling yourself after or did you really just go this as a maverick? No, I mean, I, I definitely was influenced by many people. Two of the biggest influences were probably Amy Hoy and Patrick McKenzie. Amy is an amazing entrepreneur who cuts through the BS of kind of the startup world and really focuses on how you can build valuable businesses that deliver amazing things to your clients or your customers. Patrick McKenzie, who's a good friend, what he did is he published these annual reports at the end of each year and he built a bingo card app. That was what he's known for. But he would just talk about like what he learned about SEO doing it. He would be totally transparent in his, in his sales figures and everything else. And what that did for me was, here's a fellow engineer who is just writing about business the same way I would write like a postmortem about a server going down. And it was really, really refreshing. And, and I started to see, for me, this kind of business as being achievable and doable. So not only achievable and doable, but also honorable, something that you would want to be participating in. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that that's a challenge for a lot of people too, especially people who might have a background in delivering a product or a service that is very tangible. Um, you know, I'm going in, I'm giving my hours and I'm producing this result. The idea of creating training, the end result is just a change in the mind of the person who was trained. Right. And sometimes getting that relationship between I've delivered a thing versus I've made a change in somebody's mind as a business goal is a challenge for people. That's exactly it. I mean, it's like whether you're doing corporate training and you're teaching somebody Ruby or you're doing business training and you're teaching somebody how to better market their consulting business. I mean, there's a few things that need to happen, right? You need to give somebody a change in mindset, which means, okay, here's the way you were thinking about it. Here's the way you should be thinking about it. And ideally, here's why. Like, here's why this is superior to that. And then also giving somebody a plan of action. So you know, getting somebody inspired, getting somebody to change their mindset about like, yeah, 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 business is awesome, whatever. That's all good and well, but unless somebody has a strategy and a clear plan of action for what's next, it's more like going to a motivational talk and going back and then going back to what you were doing. Like you don't, you don't want that to happen. So giving somebody a plan of action for what's next. I mean, that's what I'm 
try to do with kind of everything I do, I guess, whether it's a conference or a course or what I teach people to do with your own clients. Like how can you, again, focus on making your customers more successful, whether that's through building them a web, a web app or maybe doing some sort of monthly retainer-based advisory service for them. I'm betting that a lot of what you've learned and what you teach came from your years running the agency. It did. And I also surrounded myself, you know, I hired a business coach with my agency I joined a thing called Vistage International, which was a $2,000 a month kind of like mastermind for local business owners. And what was interesting about that was in Vistage, for instance, it was with people who did every, like there was a somebody who ran a boilerplate manufacturing business in our mastermind. And I mean, there's nothing further than what I do than that. But it was interesting just talking every month with these people and seeing how similar we were in fears and concerns and employee issues or customer slash client issues or whatever else. To me, that was really good because it helped me really see, you know, it helped me realize that I was running a business first and foremost. It wasn't like I wasn't just a technician for hire. I was actually a business owner who had to deal with profit and loss and had to deal with cash flow and had to deal with having a strategy that would allow me to be proactive in getting work versus just hoping a referral comes my way or hoping somebody goes to my website and fills out like the contact form. So I had to learn how to be a little more proactive. And that made a lot of sense because the problem with employees is I had a six figure a month payroll when I had 11 employees. So I couldn't just wait and think like, yeah, I hope we get enough new work this month that I can pay my bills. Like that isn't a sustainable business strategy at all. So I kind of had to learn the hard way and I did it by going through as much as I could on my own. So courses, you know, I hired a coach, I did this Vistage thing. I just surrounded myself with people who had already gone a little further ahead or a lot further ahead than I had. And I learned a lot through that, but a lot of that advice was more general purpose business. So I see my job now is helping people in the niche of creative freelancing, do much the same thing that I ended up needing to do the harder way. And having that direct focus, I think, is probably helpful for people. But one of the things that intrigues me about this is you saw the value of investing in coaches and in training like this. I think a lot of people would see $2,000 a month to get together with people who are in a business other than my own to talk about their problems and my problems. It would be a tough hurdle to jump. They, they might not be able to see why they would invest in something like that from the outside. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, honestly, the thing that separates, I think, a CEO from a non-CEO is somebody who understands that revenue is not profit. And I had to really do that. I had to really make, I had, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where I, I was spending a lot of money but I realized I always went into this with an investment mindset that this is going to be something that over the long haul yields a dividend, is an investment in my business. And I mean, it's the same thing for the kind of people who go to conferences, right? Like I spend a lot of money, I actually spend tens of thousands a year going around the world to conferences, but it's not just a fun thing to do. For me, it's, it's an investment in myself and in my business. I can see that. How did you find that in the first place? There were competing masterminds and programs like that out there. What was it that made this particular one appealing to you and that you knew this was the one for you? I mean, back then I knew nothing about online masterminds or anything else. This was a local person I met at a local networking event was a member of it and invited me. Again, face-to-face -face networking. Yeah. That's interesting. Did you come to that from a position of, I have a problem and I need help or I'm in a good place and I want to get better? So for instance, what I liked about the guy who introduced me, who ran a local help desk company downtown, you know, we would talk a lot. He'd invite me out to lunch occasionally and everything. And I just remember telling him about things I couldn't talk to my employees about. If you talk to your employees about cash flow concerns, they're going to start jumping ship. So I needed an outlet to be able to dump what I was feeling and what I was thinking, but also get constructive feedback. 
So that's where he was like, look, I've got, you know, I'm, a, I'm in this group. I'm happy to talk with you about it, you know, free or whatever. But I'm also in a group where what we do is we're kind of like a, we, you know, we have a guest speaker every, every month, but we also just sit around for a day. We don't do anything in our business and we only focus on our business. And we're there as a group. We're all under non-disclosure agreements. So you can say whatever you want about this pain in the butt employee or, you know, how you feel like you're going to be out going out of business next month or whatever else. And for me, it was just really refreshing because I was able to actually, if you're running a business by yourself and you, especially if you have a team, you can't, who do you talk to about this stuff? You usually don't have anyone. So you just keep it all inside. So that's, that's what I was doing. And, and this was really helpful for me. And that's interesting, but there's more value to it than just the group therapy aspect. Yes, because people had tackled issues with problem employees and had really good feedback personalized for me that they could give to me. Oh, that's cool. So, so now you're at a position, you no longer have plan scope. What is the size of your business these days? How many employees are you, are you managing? I don't have any employees, but I have a lot of contractors and well, people that are, I pay over a ton, 1099 basis, but some are more involved than others. But right now I've got five. One of them is very part-time, but the rest are pretty consistent. Is this a distributed workforce or is it co-located? No one's local. I'm in my home office. It's one of the things when I got out of my agency, I said, I never want to have an office again. Never want to have full-time employees again. So we'll see how long that lasts, but that's where I am now. No, I think the distributed business model is taking over. A lot of people are finding it so valuable and the opportunity to bring in varying perspectives also broadens the audience potential as well. Well, I live in the suburbs. My office used to be downtown and I would drive 30 minutes each way to get to my job, my, my company. And I would be there nine to six. And I was like, did I just create a job for myself that I technically own or is this what I want? And that's another reason I, I kind of was very swayed by the whole SaaS concept. Well, it actually brings up another issue that I've talked to people about when they're running their own businesses is getting yourself into a routine that works for you. I'm curious what your routine looks like. It's a little off in the air now because I just got back from a month in Europe. <laughs> I didn't do much. <laughs> but usually if it's the school year, I tend to work mornings. The reason for that is my kids get done school at three. So I try to usually, I drop them off in the morning. I work mornings and early afternoon, then I pick them up or I hang out with them. But usually I try to get all my creative work done in the mornings. I'm best right in the morning where I can do my writing. I can do anything that requires more thinking. And then afternoons I tend to have for uh, meetings or handling email or whatever else. One of the other process things is I have a VA who manages most of my email. So I don't look at my inbox. Instead, I look at a label in Gmail, which is stuff I actually need to reply to. And she does a lot of the, like if it's stuff where it's the same question that's been asked a million times, or if it's somebody who needs, they lost a link or something like that. She handles all that. That's been a huge relief for me because I honestly am not a big fan of support <laughs> and, but it's building up. So what I do now is I try to make sure that I have the mornings that I earmark just for, I don't look at my inbox. It's just for creation, you know, creating content creating value. And then afternoons, I switch over to the other. Another big thing that's helped me a lot is I used to get really burned out by the end of the day because I would, I mean, the problem with running a business is it's like, what of the billion things I could be doing right now should I be doing? So I would instead do that Sunday night. I would plan out in Trello, like one cart, one column for each day, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. And I would go and I would just put it, I would lay out my entire week so that come Monday, I know exactly what I need to be doing. Come Tuesday, I'd do the same thing. But I'd also put them in my calendar so I could see Monday I'm going to be writing from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. And then I've got a call from 12 to 12.30 or something. So th this way I don't need to make decisions throughout the day, which I found helps for when I'm done work. I'm not as exhausted. 
I can see that. And I'm curious, when you do that planning out, how much of that ends up being stuff that just keeps the business going and how much of it is future looking stuff? Depends on the week, to be honest. Like right now we're doing a big academy launch, which is future, but it's also getting my hands in the weeds and doing a lot of stuff for the immediate. But I try to always earmark a full day on Friday to working only on the business. So nothing, nothing temporal. It's always high level, big stuff. So a minimum of a day. Ideally, I'd love for it to be more like half and half. That's cool. Do you still make time for a mastermind group? I do. I am in one that meets bi-weekly, and then I'm also in a bunch of Slack channels, which are kind of asynchronous masterminds, I guess. I mean, it's a little daunting now because I'm in a bunch. It's hard when you've got chat notifications, but I've disabled most of my notifications now. But yeah, I, I have one that, that is structured that we meet bi-weekly. But then, honestly, going to conferences is my mastermind, too. Because I go and I get to see a lot of my friends from the internet who I speak with in Slack throughout the, you know, throughout the year. And this is my way of, and we'll sometimes do a little retreat afterward or before the conference and stay around for a few days, um, which is helpful. I'm curious. It sounds like what you've done, everything's built on, uh, on itself. And is there anything, if you could go back and change the way that you approached this, anything you would do differently in terms of building your business? I wouldn't start with the SaaS. <laughs> That's the simple answer. SaaS is really, really hard. It takes a lot of time. It's really hard to grow a business at $24 a month or whatever you're going to charge. It's a lot of work. I mean, there's exceptions where people will do super well and have like a hockey stick curve. But for the most part, it's people who spend a year or two more to just to get to the point of being able to replace what they used to make consulting or salaried. So what I would have done first is I would have started with an audience, built up that audience, and then really found ways to deliver value to them that gives immediate return. So for instance, with double freelancing rate, one of my courses, you go through it, you learn how to pitch better, and on your next proposal, you use it, you win, you win it, and now you can. there's a direct correlation. You know, I did this, I spent this, I got this in return. Really short feedback loop. Whereas with SaaS, it's often the delay is much bigger. There are exceptions like tools like Barometrics where it's one-click Stripe integration and you get what you need immediately. But a lot of SaaS is start you out with a blank slate. It's up to you, the user, to populate the data and to make it valuable over time. And that's that's hard. So, you know, I would have probably started with more of the training side and then gotten into SaaS. And I still might even one day go back and, and start, you know, a software product again, if and when I get the bandwidth and the desire to do that. But because I have a lot of things that, you know, a lot of things I want to help people with that I can't do through training that require software. Like I've got an idea for how I could really help people with a lot of the lead management issues that they're having, specifically for freelancers. But I, again, that's a really big, it's a really big endeavor. <laughs> so, Well, I think one of the advantages you've gained from what you've done is you've seen the power of delegation and the ability to bring other people into your network who can build these things, even though you know you could build it yourself. That's right. Yeah. And that's, that. you know, I'm, I'm very much a do-it-yourselfer. So that's been hard for me, to be honest. But it's been great just getting people who are ideally a lot better than you are to help with ways that to help provide value in ways that you can. Been doing that and it's been it's been good. I'm glad that I've finally bit the bullet and started doing that. That's awesome. So how can my listeners find you online? I know there are a lot of people who are going to want to find out about your conferences and your courses. So the best place now is doubleyourfreelancing.com. That has everything. It's got my courses, my conferences. Maybe depending on when this goes out, the meetup directory might be there also if you want to meet with local, if you're a freelancer and you want to meet other people in your city. It's all at doubleyourfreelancing.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Brennan Dunn, B-R-E-N-N-A-N-D-U-N-N. And uh, yeah, those are the two best places to, to reach me. Terrific. Brennan, thank you so much for joining me today. Yeah, thank you, David. Are you glad you listened to this episode of Hack the Process? 
Then take an action now. Make a note about something you just heard and how it's going to help you as you hack your own process. And let me know about it. This has been M. David Green, your host for Hack the Process. You can tweet me at Hack the Process, leave a review for the show on iTunes, and visit HackTheProcess.com to check out the show notes for this episode and join our community of process hackers. Thanks for listening. <laughs>